Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with EJ Perry. EJ, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm very good. And I'm glad to have you here because I know that you're, you've got a busy couple of weeks ahead of you. You're the quarterback for the Browns at Brown University. There's an article in the Boston Globe recently about you. Sorry, this is going to make you feel like uh, your head's going to get really big, but I'm going to read it anyway, because the scouts know what they're talking about. So you recently accepted an invitation to play in February's East-West Shrine Bowl, considered the second most prestigious college showcase game behind the Senior Bowl. So you're going to have a week in Las Vegas, interviews, practice in front of all 32 teams. Now here are the quotes. It's just so obvious he has the arm talent, the athletic ability to be a really intriguing prospect at the very least. We think he's one of the best senior quarterbacks in the entire country. Make no mistake, he's arguably the most athletic quarterback in the entire draft class. Wow. One NFL scout compared you to another quarterback saying, some magician-like qualities to his game. Let's see, you threw for 6,000 yards, rushed for 1,100 yards. I believe I found some stuff about you about basketball and other sports as well. Yeah, I was able to participate one season for the Browns men's basketball team. Now, my friends kind of ribbed me about it. I, at one point, I was more of a cheerleader, but you know, practicing every day with those guys was awesome. I kind of want to know some of your background, but I want to start in the middle of it. Can you tell us about what the Shrine Bowl is? What are you doing this week coming up for this February game? Yeah, You're taking time out for this. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. I got down to Fort Myers, Florida. I was training in Foxborough, Massachusetts for the month after the season. And then I came down after Christmas down here to a training facility with a, a great group of guys who are all training for different games. And basically the way it works is there are a number of these all-star games that allow you to showcase your abilities to different scouts and general managers and decision makers. And it's one of the big steps in the process. And I was fortunate enough to get an invite to a few of the games. I decided to go play in the East-West game, uh, which is in Vegas. Uh, Leading up to that, for the four weeks before it, I've been in Fort Myers training. And basically, you know, we do a regimen of lifting and speed work and working on the agility test that will be put through at the NFL Combine in your pro day, and then also working with these guys in position drills and throwing routes and getting ready for the game. If you're working Monday, Wednesday, Friday, it's just Wednesday. Are you, are you in the middle of, like, are you resting right now for something to come? Like you had something in the morning, you have something in the afternoon? Yeah, absolutely. So we had speed training this morning. Uh, I got in there around nine, they give us breakfast. And then it was about two hours. Uh, we got done around, I think, 11.15. We ate lunch. You know, now we get a about a two and a half hour break before we go back for lift. And then uh, I'll have position work with my coach tonight and a couple of the other guys. Are you nervous? Are you excited? What's it feel like to be on the cusp? I mean, all you can do is play your best, right? But are the stakes high or is this just like, this is what you train for? I would say more excitement than anything. When you're in these training periods, my mindset has always been to just focus on getting better. And that's really all it is. You know, I, don't, I haven't really spent too much time thinking about the game or anything. More so just preparation and, and getting better every day. And the way when I've done that in the past, it, it keeps me, you know, focused on, on the present. I'm definitely excited though, looking ahead, you know, we're getting, we're a week from tomorrow before I report out to Vegas and uh, it'll be a fun week out there a great opportunity to showcase. I have to ask something. I, I love asking athletes who have played in front of large crowds of what the feel, especially a quarterback. I got a pitcher on uh, in the major leagues and I was asking what it's like in the middle of 50,000 people watching him and he's got the ball and it's like 
no one else you can point to. Oh, it was his fault, right? Or no one else to take the credit. So as a quarterback, I feel like it must be something similar. I'm curious, the largest crowd you played in front of and what's it like coming from behind or you know, setting the tone for the game? What, how does it feel, if you don't mind sharing? Absolutely. I had an opportunity. I think the largest crowd was against Clemson my sophomore year. I was in a backup role and got put into the game. Uh, I was on college game day and it was a big matchup. We played an up, up-tempo style of offense in that, in that game. So it was one of those things, especially the quarterback, you know, your sole focus, you're kind of in your own little world there because you're getting the play call and you're trying to make adjustments and do your job at a high level. I've said to people, you know, in the past, being out there, being thrust in as a backup, I had no time to think or, or blank or, you know, I was put in the game on the drive and I was solely focused on getting the play call making the right call and snapping the ball as fast as I could in our system, you know, where you, you're talking about a pitcher who, who is able to take a breath and dictates the speed of the game. So it's a little bit interesting. And uh, his perspective is probably slightly different because with football, it's, it's very, especially in the way we were playing is up tempo and, and fast paced and things are going on in between the play, you're getting the next play. And but when you're in halftime and there are those moments that you do think about, what we have to do and all these different things. And there are, you know, there was a moment in the game when a great player on our team, Mike Walker, returned this 60-yard touchdown and the whole place is electric and, and screaming. And every time you complete a pass, the, the whole stands rise up. So, and, and that's similar to games. It, it's very interesting in, in uh, football and, and all sports that when you're at another team's venue, I played at Harvard and Cornell in these games, this past season and you know cornell we're we're in a two-minute drive to win the game and every pass you complete is deflating to the other team so it's kind of the opposite effect where you know you're you're getting poise and and rhythm through the quietness of the crowd so it's an interesting feeling in that sense where every time you march down the field to win the game it's getting quieter and quieter and every time they get to a second or third or fourth down they get on their feet and louder. So it's so it's an interesting uh, environment and how it contrasts to uh, where you're playing. Is the game changing over the as you get older and play at higher levels? Does that happen more and more? Are you more like are you playing at a higher level? What you're talking about now, I feel like you're almost you are silencing the crowd. Like maybe that's not your primary thing, but I would guess that when you get more experience, you're 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 doing things that you couldn't do before and you're probably seeing things you couldn't see before. Yeah, there's definitely an aspect of, you know, I'm a much better player than I was last year or two years ago or three years ago, et cetera. And there's a, a level of confidence that grows with that, but in your ability and there's definitely times comfortability level within a system, especially like this year to, to the previous year in our own system and you know it that much better and you're able to execute it at a higher level there is that feeling of like you kind of feel like on a third down it's a third down too and i remember against cornell or whoever it is any time in the game you have a fourth down uh this year we were very successful in fourth down you know the crowd's getting loud and thinking in your head like no i'm 100 percent sure we're going to complete this play like i'm very confident in this play and it's kind of funny that like it's almost anticipatory that you're going to feel this crash of enthusiasm from the opposing team's fans because you're more confident in that play and 
and executing it. And you're more confident in the players around you being in the system longer and being better players than they were the year before. Now I'm wondering, all right, it's fourth down. You got, what, a minute left, 90 seconds left. You're about to take the snap. I'm not sure if this game was, it was during the uh, rapid offense, but you're walking up, you're looking out at their defense, you know your play. Are you adjusting of how you're going? Like, are you consciously thinking whom you're going to pass to? Or are you consciously thinking, oh, the defense looks like the safety's over there. I didn't expect them to be like that. Or, and how are you going to do things differently? Or are you just on autopilot? Yeah, there, there's, um, we have a three-step system in, in terms of how we operate a play. And at quarterback, the way that manifests itself is the first step is knowing your alignment and assignment. And now the alignment for a quarterback is on 99% of the play is going to be behind the center catching the snap. And the assignment differs. But when you've executed these plays so many times, it's very quick. The assignment comes into your head on when, the, when you get the play call. And then the second step is knowing the defense. The first aspect of that is pre-snap, knowing what the defense is. And we have, you know, there's a number of different defenses they can play. We study what their tendencies are and all these different things. So I look across the line and I see how they're lined up in a shell or, or however it is, two high, one high, all these different aspects compared to our formation, et cetera. And I have a good idea of what it could be for a defense. And then we have, and, and what I'm going to do with the ball against that defense, whether it's reading out a flat defender, reading out a certain area of the field, et cetera. And then we have what's called the third step is active read of the defense. Do they confirm or deny what I saw pre-snap? Do they stay in that coverage? Do they change on the snap of the ball? Which a lot of times, you know, you'll hear rotation of safeties or they widen or they stay on the hash and all these different things that may change what I'm going to do on the fly or who I'm going to read or where the ball is going to be placed. One of the big things, and you're talking about these situations of fourth down and in a two minute drill and at the end of the game with the game on the line, we have a mentality in our offense of when they've done studies on being clutch. And our coach talks about this very, very often. They did an analysis of Derek Jeter, who's considered this very clutch player in so-called clutch situations. However, this study described it, you know, whether it was in the ninth inning with the game in a certain situation, he had a, a, a career batting average in that situation of, I think it was like 296 or whatever. I'm, I'm paraphrasing the study, but the main observation of the study was that it was one percentage point off from his career batting average in all situations. And that's, considered one of the most clutch players of all time what we've gathered from that is we want to do exactly what we would do in any situation we don't want to change because of the situation we want to execute the play called as if it was first down as if it was second down we're not going to now throw the ball past the to the 14 14 yard throw because it's third and 14 we're going to take the underneath throw because it's open and if he's able to gain 14 yards, not, then good. If not, we'll go for it on fourth down or et cetera. But we want to do, like, act and operate in the exact same manner in clutch situations as non-clutch situations. And we want to have an exact same effectiveness in both. And that's, to us, that's defined as clutch. Operating in the same manner as you would and allow other people who think you need to do something special and the, the thing that's been observed in that case is that it lowers your effectiveness. 
that tells me, I mean, that points to preparation as, as huge and that you, you're going to play like you practice and that you have to practice. I remember when I was playing sports younger, when there were some people who would go out to have fun and we were just, it was almost infuriating because if you're just casually playing here, you're probably going to casually play in a game. That means that when you're, if I read you right, then that means in practice, you've got to play, you've got to simulate fourth and two. I guess I'm just asking broadly, is the preparation as intense as a game? I, I, it is, right? It's We prepare all those situations and all obviously Bill Belichick's considered the best situational coach of all time because it's transcended the, the sport of football now is to be extremely prepared for all the situations you're going to be faced because they're crit, what's called critical downs or et cetera and understanding what could come your way. But when that ball is snapped, we want to operate in the same way. You know, we want to just execute our rules. We don't want to do too much or do something different than we, you know, are taught to do. And it, it's similar comparison in the baseball analogy of like, if it's the ninth inning, there's two outs and you're down one run. You're not walking up there to swing for the fences and try to hit a home run and be the hero. You're walking up there to execute your same mentality that you would any other at bat which is I'm trying to get on base and that's going to lead to you being a more efficient player. And in the long run, over time, you're going to be considered clutch. That's how we describe it. All this preparation, I, you're talking about how it applies in a game. These also sound like great life skills. Does your athleticism and your training on the field translate into living differently than you would otherwise? I mean, it does. How? No, absolutely. And, and it's something that you know, in football, this previous season, I had to get better at throughout the season. But it's um, as a quarterback, you can't make bad things worse. You know, you have the ball in your hand, the ball is everything. And when something bad happens on the field, or something breaks down, you can't then make the play worse. And that's like, a golden rule for life is when something bad happens to you, don't make it worse. When you're in a bad situation, don't lie and make it worse. When you're in a, a situation that not to bring up but like a current event was the Theranos scandal like the woman who was in at the forefront of it she you know unraveled herself into this terrible situation where at the beginning you know the in this exacerbated example of it but there's all sorts of life lessons and, and that's one of the ones you get out of you know operating the way you would no matter what and it's kind of you want to be a principled person and have the same decision making process throughout life just like you're going to on fourth down and first down and second down and third. Well, now, if this is too abrupt a change of topic, you're also playing the Ivy League. This is not the usual route to the NFL. You could have gone somewhere else that might have had a safer route to the NFL. How'd you decide on Brown? How'd you decide on... And, and what's it like being in this overlap of... I, I think you're probably in a rare position of, of being elite education, elite sports... Absolutely. Um, when I was coming out of high school, I actually went to Boston College for two years. You know, I made the decision to transfer. One of the things during the transfer process I said was I didn't want to drop significantly in education level. Boston College is obviously a, a really good school. Secondly, I wanted a chance to play in the NFL. And, you know, I sat down with a number of different coaches in, in the kind of transfer recruiting process and making that decision and what ultimately it came down to was you know i heard all these different 
pitches from these coaches and at a bunch of other schools, you know, some of them were talking about, you know, it'd be a great story and, you know, you could throw for all these yards and uh, you can come in and we'll win a bunch of games and all these different things. And coach Perry's pitch to me at Brown and, and the rest of the staff was, you know, solely focused on the process of making you a better player, which is to me, when I was making that decision, first of all, you know, I felt being a transfer as a sophomore, I needed to become a much, much better player if I wanted to realize my goals of playing this game. And secondly, that that process and, and figuring out that process and perfecting that process, which is something that is a lifelong goal of, you know, improvement and getting better, no matter what the aspect is. But if they're telling me they, they're better at this process or they're focused on this process, you know, that's going to serve me much better in life than worrying about throwing for a bunch of yards or whatever the other case is. That's how I made my decision ultimately. Do I read you right that it was what will one-on-one relationship of someone saying, I'm going to focus on you and, and make things best for you as opposed to something, I don't know, more abstract. It sounds thrilling, but it sounds like the relationship between you and Coach Perry. Yeah, I, I mean, that's definitely served and, and was an aspect, but I guess the best way to describe it is that, you know, one of the things that I've noticed through being in um, college football is a lot of it is, uh, you know, it's very much a business and a lot of it is, you know, extracting what they can out of players and, and getting them to give them all they can, which, which is ultimately, uh, yeah, if I'm a coach, I want everything. And as a player, I'm going to give you everything I have. But one of the things that, you know, I, and I had made great strides physically. I had put on 30 pounds in my freshman and sophomore year at Boston college and tremendously, but you know, I, I didn't, I wanted to be able to focus on, you know, continuing to be a better player. And at Brown university with coach Perry's staff, it was their main focus for every player on the team was to make them better football players. And, and it was their mindset that ultimately that was going to make them a better football team. And in the end, uh, lead to wins. And that's what I was drawn to. And instead of focusing on how do we win, how do we win, how do we win, it's how do we get better because better players result in wins. What's the ratio between student athlete, the between the student part and the athlete part at Brown versus BC or among other players as well? Yeah, absolutely. The Ivy League is, you know, infamous or, or known for being an academic focused institutions and that is shown through their rules that they have uh, regulating their athletics, which, you know, there's big gaps in times of year when you can't be with the, the football team and things are strictly voluntary and you're not, you don't have access to the coaches, et cetera. For, you know, there's a 47-day break over winter break and there's, uh, you know, it's a shortened season of only 10 games. They're not allowed in the playoffs. They're not allowed to, you know, have postseason competition. I, that's not an Ivy League rule. That's an Ivy League football rule. Every other Ivy League sport is allowed to compete in their championships. It's something that is much more focused on academic than at a Boston college where they do a good job of just focusing on both at the same time, uh, which is one of the things I noticed. And I was very grateful for having that experience at Boston College because I felt I was able to bring that and, and understand what it takes to be, quote unquote, a Division One or in the other aspects in these other times of the years when they send you on your own. 
this is really exciting to hear. The reading what they've written, I haven't seen you play in person, so I can't say from that, but I'm excited to see. Oh, we'll be able to watch the game, the Shine Bowl. Yeah, it's, it's um, Thursday, February 3rd. I think it's 6 p.m. I'm not 100% sure on the time, but I believe it's 6 p.m. on NFL Network. Oh, I can't wait to watch. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Before we hit record, we were talking about the environment, which is, you know, this is what this podcast is, talks about, a lot about. And you listen to a few episodes, and I'm curious if the, is the environment something that, is, that you pay attention to, that you watch, that you, is that on your radar? Yeah, I mean, uh, being a part of, of Brown University, there's a tremendous amount of uh, student support for the environment. And just students who are intellectually curious, intellectually pushing while being there, I, you know, was able to hear about and get introduced to all these different sorts of things. And growing up as a kid in the suburbs and, you know, having a backyard and, and, you know, I remember like there was a river that, or a little brook that ran in the backyard and it like formed like a pond and like just going out there, like that was like, my childhood was like running out in the summers, like back there and, and going up into Vermont and all these different experiences I've had, like being in these areas of nature and et cetera. It definitely made me appreciate that more and, and reflect back on that when I would hear these different conversations while at Brown and being in the city for the first time at Boston College and then at Brown in Providence, you know, it was a different experience and, and something that you know, made me appreciate it even more. It just occurred to me that you're one of the younger people I've had on this podcast. And now I have to ask, I want to know the difference between how someone older and someone younger looks at things, but obviously each of us is only ourselves. But is there a sense of things are challenging coming up with the environment? For me, personally, I've always had, and I don't know where it comes from or whatever, but, you know, faith in people that are much smarter than me to figure things out that are much more complex. And, you know, as I've gone through and experience, especially at Brown and Boston College and being in these universities, like there are brilliant people around us. And, uh, you know, I, I have tremendous faith and, you know, I try to appreciate the things that I get to enjoy right now. Being in nature, you know, it's funny having been in Boston previously or in the Northeast area with the cold now being here, the sun is something I enjoy uh, the warmth down here. So it's been nice, but yeah, I don't think there's any sort, I, I personally don't. And I think that might be also because of my mindset to stay present and focused on, you know, what I have and, and the tasks at hand that I have. That's curious. I, you know, what makes the news is millennials and Gen Z and that everyone's freaked out and, and angry. Well, I mean, that's what gets the media attention. No one's going to say like, hey, people are really calm. It's refreshing to hear that someone who is developing and practicing leadership skill, especially under challenging circumstances. I mean, a football field is different than in the rest of life. But 
I don't think we get helped by people getting frantic and panicked. I mean, the part of the reason I bring athletes on is that they face challenging situations. And oh yeah, who was I talking to? I was talking to some guy in the NFL, uh, a New York Jet, and he was saying how the play is fast. It, like if if like I asked him what's it like to miss a tackle. He's a linebacker. I first asked him what it's like to ta- like an open field tackle that you make that's clutch. That probably feels that it feels great. But what if you miss the tackle and you're just watching the guy go down the field? And part of what he said is that you immediately have to, like you have seconds to put that out of your head. That's gone and get right back in the next play. That kind of emotional skill, EQ, I guess. I associate that with sports. I mean, with performance things because it's in the arts. If you're, you know, an actor or a dancer uh, or stand-up comedian, I think these are very, these are essential things that I, one of the reasons I bring people on here who are not just environmentalists is to bring that kind of stuff to the environment because I don't think it's, I don't see it there. I see a lot of frantic or just sticking with facts. Oh, absolutely. It reminded me, and I, I know you were asking about the translating of life lessons from football. And, you know, my freshman year at Boston College, I think it might have been my first semester, you know, I had this practice where I was very frustrated on the field. And then, you know, we got back in and our coach, he had begun saying this thing because it was one of those, you know, we're in the middle of a a camp and every single day, when you're in football camp, it's four weeks of you wake up at 5am in the morning and you're back in your room at 8pm and you're doing things the entire day. You know, you have meetings, practice, meetings, film, lift, uh, walk through, you know, lunch, dinner in between. It's these long, long days when you have this practice that's two and a half, three hours and all these different plays, you can feel this sense, you know, even when it's a a sense from just like general practice or however it is of frustration or excitement or, you know, however the momentum or whatever you want to call that feeling, you know, everyone kind of feels it about their own play. One of the things he constantly reminded us of because you go and watch it immediately after in film is it's never as good as it seems and it's never as bad as it seems. If you feel like you're having the greatest practice in the world because you threw two touchdown passes and you completed, you know, seven out of 10, you know, you're going to go back and, and find out that you missed the, the mic point on the outside zone run and you forgot to check the protection in this play and you had this guy, you know, open and he was your third read and you didn't get to it fast enough or, if you have this practice where you feel like you did horrendous because you threw a pick and you uh, did this, you're going to get back and you notice the things like, well, actually, you know, I, I, it wasn't as bad as it seemed. You know, I read through the progression correctly. The ball was tipped or, you know, he was too deep on his route and it's something we have to communicate and all these different things that you would get from the analysis. But what I've always learned is that the feeling you get immediately from the first intake of an information, which is on the field, is it's never as good as it seems, it's never as bad as it seems. And until you do a full analysis on it, you won't get a true sense of what the reaction should be. And oftentimes, what it is, is is an, you know, an accumulation of good things and bad things, and it's somewhere in the middle. And it's something that I've taken, you know, kind of in life is just to, you know, not worry about emotion. And it was something at Brown that we were very, very heavily focused on is that, you know, we want to take the emotion out of the game or at least out of the decision-making process of the game. You know, we want to celebrate good plays and have emotion 
and play with toughness and and excitement for our teammates and all these different things. But when we're making decisions, when we're you know deciding who to throw the ball to, when we're deciding how to run a route versus certain coverages or reading the coverage, we want to do it as an analyzing person, not as an emotional person. And that was something that you know I've learned through playing football and and kind of carried out into life. Is that when you read these headlines or you know, these things that are saying small bits of information, it's never as good as it seems. It's never really as bad as it seems. So I'm sure with all sorts of world issues, there are things that need to be done. And I'm sure there's things that are exacerbated. Think about how this translates into your take on things. Like, Is the environment something that you've acted on? Is it something that you've taken to heart and said, well, do something? Or, or is it just leave it to the experts? That's an interesting question. I'm trying to think of in my personal life. You know, I was reading your online, you know, testament to the environment and how you've you've tried to limit things. And I haven't really done a deep analysis on you know my effect or my consumption levels or uh, etc. Maybe that's something I will do after you know since reading your stuff. And it's definitely something interesting to think about, not only for the for the fact of, you know, how much carbon or, you know, the effect I'll have, you know, on that or whatever the case is, but, you know, more so just, am I living a life that's focused on the purpose that I have? Or am I living a life that's for the consumption and and material that I have? Definitely, that is something I've been conscious about. And I've never been one. And I, I, you know, feel that that'll continue in my life to, to be focused on material things or consumption, et cetera. Well, if you're up for it, I'll see. I, one of the things I, I want to decrease is that people believe that you have to have all the science knowledge to know. You don't have to know how cigarette smoke causes lung cancer to know not to smoke. And if someone does smoke, giving them a bunch of science isn't necessarily going to help them as much as being a role model, role model stories, images, beliefs. These tend to be more effective. If you're game for it, I'll walk you through doing something, which I think will activate things without being complicated. Absolutely. So when you think about the environment, what do you think about? I mean, you talked about growing up and the, I think there's a stream and a pond or is that like the, is that what nature means to you? Is Are there other images? Yeah, I think that idea of like, when you're as a kid, always been, you know, like I said, in Vermont, New Hampshire, whether it's at the beach or in the mountains of, of Vermont, you know, on trips and different things where you take a deep breath and like you say that fresh air thing, but it really does feel true that it's like this crisp fresh air and like in the springtime with the flowers and different things. So I, I, that's what I've always gotten a sense of the environment and nature, I guess. I guess more I'm more describing nature than the environment. I guess environment is everything around us. So I'm picturing you, I don't know, with a family or with friends in the mountains in the springtime. How does it feel? Is it it's fresh? Is it um, enjoyable? Is it pure and clean? Or is it... Um, what are some of the emotions with this? Yeah, absolutely. You know, fresh, enjoyable, whether it's, you know, swimming or observing or a workout that you're doing outside. It's definitely fresh, enjoyable, the, the feeling of the sun, etc. So those feelings, I invite you to challenge you if if you're up for it. And and you don't have to do this. 
to think of something to do in your day-to-day life, which could be right away, it could be after the game, to manifest those things, to act on those feelings, to make them happen a bit more than they would otherwise, with a couple caveats or a couple... uh, What I'm not saying is what is the most important thing you can do to save the planet. Uh, It's not about that. It, it may be that you have some contribution, but that's not the point. It's something, if, if you do go for it, it's something that has to be something you're not already doing. Something that you do yourself, not telling other people to do it or organizing other people to do something. That's fine, but that's not this. Something that has some physical component, not just reading a book or watching a documentary. If you're up for it, it usually takes a, a few minutes of going back and forth to think of what that might be because it's not, it was, it's when someone figures it out, comes up with something, it's almost always something that augments their life and gives them time. Doesn't take resources, but gives resources. Although it's usually not apparent at first. And if you're up for it, then I'd ask you to come back a second time and share how it went. Absolutely. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Would something like being more conscious recycling in my hotel currently, is that something that would fit that criteria that you're talking about? Is it something that connects with your experience in the Vermont mountains, that fresh feeling? I guess not. Yeah, a lot of people first jump in with like, oh, here's what I've been told. I'm supposed to do this. Yeah. yeah I'm not saying don't do those things, but that's not coming from inside. And this is to activate intrinsic motivation. See, it's interesting because I'm so far away from where I've gotten those experiences, whether I would connect it to something, an experience I've had with my environment here. Uh, instead, that would be easier. It could be after you get back. It could be... I, I got to tell you, when you're talking about that, I have been into... I've skied in Vermont. I, have, I don't think I've been there in the spring. No, I have been there in the spring. And I don't know... I wasn't exactly where you were. But what you described, I felt. Here in New York City, I think these things are more accessible than people think. If we activate it. You know, one of the things that as a kid... I used to do with my grandmother all the time was, and she obviously continues to do it, but is plant flowers, but she also grows tomatoes and basil. And, you know, I think that would be something that helping her in, in creating her garden and, and maybe even at my own house doing something like that, because that's another experience that, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, like my grandfather, when I was like eight, telling me, go pick a tomato off the tomato plant behind the house, and we'd go and directly make a sandwich from it. I felt that was always very, very connecting and rewarding. And, and it always was a, a positive memory, especially whenever your grandfather asks you to do something and you can feel helpful around the house. It's additionally, you know, gives you a positive feeling inside. But, you know, the other aspect of being connected to nature. Yeah, I don't know if the listeners can hear the smile that I see on your face when you're talking about this. And this is, my read is that this is more connected. Something that either planting something or helping your grandmother plant something, I I believe that that would fit the bill. If you weren't going to help her already, then shame on you. No, just kidding. (laughs) No, I know, right? Exactly. No, I know. I always get called, but whenever I'm there, I'll help with with situations and such, but you know, maybe it'll be a conscious decision at the beginning of the spring to be a part of building the the planting beds and turning the soil. Something that um, you know, I might always, I, I would not be accompanied for. So, yeah, if you want to hear a really exciting episode, uh, what's his name? Correa, Correa. Uh, he's Brazilian, and now I feel terrible. I'm not remembering his name off the bat. He set the world record for most number of burpees in an hour, which is pushing a thousand. 
he said he was going to do something about planting something and he he bought a bonsai tree and listening to him talk about this bonsai tree is like it's in in a certain sense it's just a tree but he's in a city and he grew up in the country and it's just a connection that he's it's touching to hear him talk about it and he was showing it to me so if you if you're up for it could we clarify and make it a smart goal specific measurable yeah, specific. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What specific, measurable, attainable? What's RT, a time frame, and what's R? Different. Say, I say realistic. Realistic. Yeah, I'll do kind of a combination. We'll have, we'll set two because my grandmother moves at her own pace and it's very very fast and uh, she does things constantly. So I don't want to miss her or hold her up for that. You know, she might end up listening to this and be like, "Oh, I can't plant my." my tomato trees until he gets home. So I'll leave that. I will try to do that as well and, and be a part of that. But I'll plant two tomato trees in my own house and uh, tend to them this spring and, and see if we can grow some successful tomatoes in uh, our backyard. All right. So if I heard you right, you're going to plant two tomato, I would say vines. and but Yeah, then... vines, plants. Yeah, not trees. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You'll help her, but it sounds like the, the, the specific thing that you'll do is to do your own tomato plants. And if you help her, yes. that'll be some nice stories that we'll get to hear otherwise. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. After we start recording, can we get out the calendars and schedule when we'd have a second conversation or to, to yeah, share Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, yeah, do, this is to me something that's missing from the environmental, I don't know what you call it, environmentalism, that this, it's really joyful. Yes, there's, I, I think people are more active after they act and make it personal, then it's a serious issue that the sea levels are rising and, and Miami's going to be underwater. And, but what's in our hearts are our grandmother's gardens. And I think we'll get faster to work on Miami or you know Bangladesh if we first activate and make it, uh, I would say, genuine, authentic, and, and effective. But we'll see because you're gonna have the experience. Maybe you'll maybe we'll Absolutely. talk again and you'll be like, I don't know, they didn't bloom and they, <laughs> yeah. And I was I just watering this empty more dirt. <laughs> Nothing came out. My testament, my testament as a gardener. But we'll have to uh, refine those skills as well, and then that'll be a part of the challenge to dig out some of those old skills of when I was shoveling and tilling land uh, back in the day. Oh yeah, and it might happen that maybe you get scouted and, and recruited, and you got to go off to some practice, and you're like, what do I do with these tomatoes? You could be, you might have to have your parents take care of it while you're gone, or you might take it with you and have your, your teammates be like, what's that? And he's like, dude, it's my tomato. Well, so, so that's something that, uh, it's funny you mentioned that because my grandmother spends time in Florida every year. And I actually got a chance to go visit her a few weeks back uh, while I was down here. Something to connect her back home and that she's always done and give her, you know, more things she plant, she, you know, had tomato plants that, I think my uncle Tim got her uh, while he was down there and she was down there for two or three months or two months or so. And the tomatoes were coming pretty at a, at a good pace and she had to go home, you know, back to uh, the Northeast and she didn't know what to do with the tomato plants. All of her neighbors were, uh, you know, fighting over who would, who would be able to get the tomato plants. So it was a funny thing that, you know, she, she was able to pass those on and, Everyone was very excited to, uh, you know, have fresh tomatoes growing on the, the back of their condominium. I'll help you with those tomatoes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I propose picking up here next time. Uh, is there anything I didn't think to ask, or anything you want to say? No, I, 
I appreciate the conversation and having me on and and uh, I have my homework assignment and I'll uh, I'll be excited to do it and it'll definitely make uh, you know my grandmother happy if I come over and more so I, I know you'll be excited to see a picture of a, a tomato grow on mine but you know she'll be proud of me if I'm able to get one to grow off the uh, little things in life right you know that's what is important so yeah I'll see if I can successfully grow a tomato. Oh man, you're talking about uh, want to see pictures, but you're making me hungry already. <laughs> I want to. Yeah. We're not in season right now. Well, yeah. Good luck in the game in what is it? Two weeks from now. The game is in two weeks. I fly out in one week from tomorrow. But yes, February third. Well, you're in the middle of a lot of things. Thanks for making this time. And yeah, EJ Perry, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.